Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He has been generous of his time in joining us this morning, Mario Gabelli. For those of you not on Global Wall Street, um, he is an original in modern value investment, and he's an original in patience, and he's an original in shareholders should get their fair share. Are we going to continue to see share buybacks, Mario, as we go up, up, up? Is that just the easy path for CEOs? Yeah, it's a great question, and it always depends on how you allocate capital, Tom. Uh, what is the uh, Right now, you've got almost the triple tax on the uh, corporate earnings, the corporate tax, the uh, tax on dividends, and then the surcharge on dividends that was a uh, snuck in at night. But if, if I'm a steel company, do I want to reinvest in the steel business and open a heart? No, the answer is business has changed. So keep your powder dry, be flexible, and uh, obviously uh, change uh, with the world that's going on over the next 10 to 20 years. And uh, uh, buybacks, if I'm buying back the stock materially below intrinsic value, mm -hmm. that helps everyone. If it's buying it back to support the stock, it makes no sense. If, you know, and uh, so you got to figure out what. When do yields compete with dividends again in our lifetime? Well, it depends on a snapshot or a motion picture. On a motion picture, you really want to own up companies that are good, have corporate earnings, and are uh, growing and can maintain purchasing power in mm -hmm. real terms. So if inflation picks up, which I'm in a camp that says it will, uh, then you want to earn not right. a static return, Tom, but a return that grows with time. Okay, let's bring in Tim O'Brien, who knows nothing about yours or my world, but he's been talking with Matthew Levine of Bloomberg View all night about the financial markets. Tim O'Brien with Mario Gabelli. Uh, Mario, it's good to have you here today. My Thanks. privilege to listen to you. Thanks for tolerating me. My Actually, my Bloomberg Gadfly colleague, Stephen Gandell, there yesterday you go. Wrote, uh, had a nice piece about earnings outlooks for the S&P 500. We obviously had a a great first quarter where earnings across the board were up about 14%. It looks in the second quarter like they're going to slow to about 6.4%. <clears throat> and people are even a little more bearish for earnings in the third quarter at maybe only 5% or so. So what does that mean about valuations, Mario, if, if for, for the bullish outlook at a market that probably is more than fully valued right now? Well, corporate earnings always drive that picture. So what do you think? Well, it's a multiple. It's earnings and the multiple to earnings. The multiple earnings are a function of interest rates and uh, inflation uh, is in fun as an underpinning to interest rates and so on. From my point of view, the euro today is 114. <clears throat> a year ago is 110. So American companies are going to get the tailwind. 30% of earnings are outside the United States, so you're going to get a tailwind as opposed to a headwind yeah. on translations. Europe is doing better. Germany, you're going to think China's about... doing better is the consensus we hear. Well, uh, they're not that much earnings in China. And the financials are going to do better if the slope of the mm -hmm. interest rate curve goes upward. So those are important parts of the market. So I... Uh, yeah. You know, the macro guy, Steve, is probably right. I don't do macro. On the other side, 
There's always opportunities uh, anywhere in the world, and yeah. that's where we try to ferret out. John Tucker, did you see how smart that Tim O'Brien question was? Is this is he's like sitting in, or is this an audition? Um, <laughs> it's this, a takeover. I, I think it's an audition. Is there, is there something I need to know? Here? I should point out to Mario that Tom is approaching the mandatory retirement. Very yes, good. So am I. I so Tim can have my job. Let's have another <laughs> mandatory question for Mr. O'Brien. Tim. Um, uh, Mario, the other thing that sort of sneaks in on this is is how much energy companies contributed to the first quarter earnings rise. Is that sustainable in that sector from your perspective? Uh, look, the uh, you, to make the case that oil at $45 a barrel is uh, a question mark, but if Saudi Arabia is trying to go public with one of their companies, will they trim back? And on the other side, American technology in the form of fracking has given us a reservoir of energy. It is a pro providing at the margin the incremental amount. But at the same time, you look at what happened to Adelaide, uh, Australia, where they ran out of energy because they didn't have the right policy. So we got to do a lot of things together. And uh, as far as earnings are concerned, we are buying uh, some of these stocks now. Is President Trump good for the stock market? No, but the policies of a uh, applaud businesses opposed to condemn them is clearly very good. The mm -hmm. allocation of money to capitalism as opposed to socialism is always very good. And the free market system, which has functioned effectively <clears throat> since Adam Smith came around and allocated, has been one of the great wonders of the world in terms of helping, yeah. helping mankind. You and I heard Jay Clayton of the Securities and Exchange Commission yesterday at the Economic Club of New York. I don't believe he brought up the T word once. And it's interesting how government could move on even with all the uproar about the president. Do you have an optimism that can occur? Well, if the government can move on, but not under Bernie Sanders. Well, how about on infrastructure? Or, or Yeah, great question. And, uh, Tim, let me go into that. In uh, December 15, 2015, we, as a government, passed a rule saying uh, the fix America's surface transportation, and companies did well. Today, Inland Waterway, Inland Waterway, things that help the American farmer move goods, uh, the notion of avionics, uh, infrastructure is going to do well. From what I like is Case New Holland. I like companies that are involved in infrastructure like Dana, which sells parts to Class A trucks on a global basis, uh, and so on. So Case New Holland, for example, has farm equipment. It has construction <coughs> equipment. It has uh, a mm -hmm. company that is run by a guy that took Ferrari public because he realized it wasn't a car company but a luxury good. They're going to take Iveco public and take uh, yeah. and do a lot. So one, there's a lot going on. One final question, if we could, before you start your uh, day. You were iconic on Steve Ross and Time Warner of a long time ago. Give us an update now on Time Warner and the media business in general. Are you enthused? Well, <laughs> the notion of Steve, uh, Stevenson at AT&T putting his arms around DirecTV and now putting that around, you've got to allow companies to buy what they want. If they make mistakes, it is what it is. If they uh, add value, it is what it is. So I like entertainment. I like content. I like connectivity. Wireless, cable. What am I buying? I'm buying Millicom because John Malone is going to buy it. He just primed the pump with Lilac, a Liberty International, by buying stock that he hasn't bought before. So there's a lot going on, Tom, and I want to own wireless companies. I want to own cable companies. Millicom is one that will be taken over within mm -hmm. two years. The stock's 55, owned by a Swedish company called uh, Shinovic, 38%. Uh, that's clearly in uh, everyone's okay. radar screen. Mario Gabelli, thank you so much uh, for joining privilege us to be here, Tim. Television Great to meet you. And Thanks, uh, uh, use your sharp elbow and move them out. <laughs> thank you. Whoa. Uh, oh, 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 oh. Did you mean Mario me or the president? Offer. I, I, have to follow up on that. I said T. Okay, uh, Mario Cavalli, thank you uh, so much. 
This is a, just a joy this morning. Timothy O'Brien in for us as David Gurra is in Idaho. We'll go to Mr. Gurra uh, later on. And joining us now, really in the nexus of our nation's political science, is Douglas Elmendorf. To say he's at Kennedy out of Harvard barely describes his public service, particularly his service with the Congressional uh, Budget Office. Uh, Dean Elmendorf, I guess, do you go by Dean Doug? I mean, is is Dean the appropriate title? <laughs> Tom, you can just call, you can just call me Doug if you'd like. All I want to know is do you have Red Sox tickets? Because that's the only reason to talk to you, uh, Doug. <laughs> Doug, seriously, within the CBO scoring debate, is the CBO Mitch McConnell's friend right now? Because everybody seems to look at CBO as the evil enemy. Is the CBO Senator McConnell's friend? CBOs isn't supposed to be anybody's friend or enemy. They're objective analysts providing their best informed estimate of the effects of proposed policies. And at different points in time, those estimates will turn out to help or hurt certain congressional members' causes. And that's just the way the system works. But through that system, you and I, as well as all the members of Congress, learn what the effects of proposals will be before yeah. the members have to vote on them. I should point out that Dean Elmendorf was knee-deep in President Clinton's health care efforts of another time and place. Timothy O'Brien with us this morning from Bloomberg View. Tim, a question for Dean Elmendorf. Um, uh, Doug, is do you think that this sort of backlash against the CBO smacks of uh, the previous backlash against the statisticians at the BLS around labor statistics. Have we entered into this sort of moment where people feel comfortable uh, contending with almost anything that we once considered to be objective facts? Yes, I'm very concerned about that. This administration is afraid of facts and evidence and analysis. And OMB Director Mulvaney attacked the Bureau of Labor Statistics for how it calculates the unemployment rate. He's attacking CBO for its independent analysis. This is very dangerous for our political system and for our country. And I think it's important that Republican congressional leaders stand up for CBO and its work. Because this actually isn't a partisan or ideological issue. It's just about good government and good data at the end of the day, isn't it? That's exactly right. Um, what do you, where do you think this is springing from at its core? Well, I understand that the administration and some Republicans in Congress are frustrated because CBO's estimates are not helping them pass their health legislation. But that's not CBO's fault. The Republicans are pushing legislation that would take health insurance away from tens of millions of Americans. That's going to be a hard sell to the American people if the American people understand it. So naturally, the sponsors of that sort of legislation mm. don't want that understanding to occur, and they're going to try to stop the people like right. CBO who are informing Americans. Dean Elmer, one more question, if we could, in a brief visit this morning. I know you read all of your working papers at Kennedy, uh, the great Danny Roderick, on populism and the economics of globalization. Is the American populism the same as the population, uh, populism of Europe? There are different strands, of course, in different places and different particular issues. But Danny wrote 20 years ago that the great challenge was whether global economic integration would lead to domestic social disintegration. And he, he saw that coming decades away. 
And unfortunately, we are now seeing the fruits of that in ways that are very damaging for our countries. Dean Elmendorf, thank you. Too short a visit this morning. We greatly appreciate it. Douglas Elmendorf is with the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, University. We forget, Tim O'Brien, that these schools have entire industries of bright people really struggling with the topics of the day. And we're in an era where, to some extent, maybe not a great extent, they're basically tarred and feathered on a a, a daily basis. There's always been an, an anti-academia, but maybe it's a little harsher now than it's been. And it's not just academia. It's about data and research and facts. I think we have to be really cautious around all this. And we try. We were working on that um, as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr again in Idaho. Timothy O'Brien of Bloomberg View now with us this morning. And joining us now, Brian Weezer of Pivotal Research. And really, Brian, I, I guess what we need to focus, uh, rather, uh, uh, Brian, what we need to focus on is this continued dominance of Google and Facebook. It's such a pervasive feeling, my radar's up. Do you buy the idea they're as dominant as dominant could be? Oh, it's not just the buying of the idea. All, any fact out there supports it. There's 70% of the total revenue from digital advertising. They're 90 to 110% of the growth, depending on uh, when <clears> you... Uh, define the period. Um, yeah, no, they're dominant. And I think the rest of the industry is looking yeah. for a way to prevent their dominance from expanding. Let me bring in someone who lives this. Timothy O'Brien, you've lived this advertising change, not only at the New York Times, but also at Huffington Post as well. I mean, you've lived what Brian Weezer's talking about. It's, you know, a monetization of content and platforms is the key industry for anybody who's on the web, or key metric to consider for anyone who's on the web right now. Brian, you raised a really interesting and crucial point, obviously, in your in in your in, in one of the, your notes that I read, which is this whole issue of viewability and metrics and whether the duopoly, but really anyone else in the industry who's selling advertising is going to open themselves up to third party analysts who will either validate or or have their own point of view on monetization and advertising revenue. Where do you think we are on the, on the viewability issue? Uh, it, well, the, the industry is at least aware that it's got a problem. And I think like, um, you know, people like me, uh, I'll call myself a digital truther, um, that uh, for far too many years, there was this shine on digital advertising that it's perfect, it's targetable, it's addressable, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And that was never true. Um, and so now, at least large brands are fully aware that there are problems and they're finding solutions. So it's really Facebook and Google in particular where the walled garden problem is most pronounced uh, because it's so important, because it's so big. Um, you know, I think a Mark Pritchard, from, who's a Procter & Gamble's chief brand officer, has been one of the most vocal um, industry players and really is leading the charge right now by basically uh, indicating they're, they're going to move their money. Uh, if Facebook doesn't do what they need them to do. Now, that might not be enough for Facebook. Well, and where do they move it to if, if they're going to make a threat like they that? They increase their spending on TV pretty significantly, which is why the upfronts went up. So that's part of it. You know, I mean, the problem is that Facebook, so the metrics that I have seen suggest that video views on Facebook are like 2% viewable. In other words, 2% mm. of mm. the ads delivered on Facebook get 
actually viewed. Then why do they get money? Uh, that's a really good question. So in all cases, advertising is the least bad alternative to business, right? So if you've got a digital budget to spend, you've allocated money to spend on digital, where's the least bad place to spend it? If you're a big brand, oh. Facebook's the least bad place. Do you have a single it. best buy right now before you run out the door? I have exactly one buy out of 18 stocks. Isn't that shocking? Fox. Fox what? Fox uh, 21st movies? Century Fox. The only buy I have. I have three cells or two cells. Yeah, three cells. Why Fox? It's just undervalued. I think, you know, the market is really, you know, doesn't like uh, James Murdoch that much. Mm. I think they're concerned about what Fox News in particular. I think I hear a lot of concerns that. Uh, so this is a TV it. Fox. This is all the uproar over yeah, there. Not with... News Corp. But yeah, right. exactly. So the studio, the TV station yeah, group. Right. Um, I think the Sky transaction, I mean, it's going to be a bit of yeah. a rocky road to get there. But I yeah. think it's going to be really good if it happens. Uh, Brian Weezer, thank you so much. I, I believe Anytime. Tim O'Brien's rumored to take out uh, Sean Hannity's spot. Uh, <laughs> Brian Weezer with Pivotal, as a joke, folks. Uh, uh, Brian Weezer with uh, Pivotal Research uh, this morning. Greatly uh, uh, appreciate that. This is a good time, and this goes to what Tim O'Brien was talking about earlier. It is a good time, and we spoof about the word czar, which has always been unfortunate. Czar Ratner joins us this morning. Stephen Ratner, we should say, uh, he is involved in the investment activities of our principal owner, Michael uh, Bloomberg. But Steve Ratner, I I really want to talk to you about what Tim O'Brien was talking about, which is process and procedure in a given institution like the White House. How do we assist our president towards process and procedure in the White House that even a czar could understand? <laughs> uh, look, I, I don't think we have a president who's all that interested in advice uh, or suggestions or pretty much anything else as to how he should operate the White House. Uh, I did spend some time in the White House. I've obviously observed this one from afar, as we all have. And it is, it is really quite extraordinary to see how this op- White House operates relative to any other one I've ever been around in my, my time in and out of Washington. You've, you, is there nobody you could compare him to, Steve? Is he that uh, of, of his own? I don't think there's anybody you can compare him to. I think when uh, Jimmy Carter, who's White House, I also covered as a reporter, I think the chaos that existed there at the beginning when, he, when Carter announced he wasn't going to have a chief of staff, he was going to have this hub-and-spoke approach and all these different people wandering in and out of the Oval Office, you could probably compare the confusion to it. But, but, the, the sort of the, the sort of, uh, uh, but that was sort of undesired confusion. This seems to be desired chaos on, on President Trump's part. And so there's nobody in my lifetime you can compare him to. Do you think it's bleeding into the rest of Washington, the sort of Trump lack of managerial focus and uh, I think a lack of goal orientation. I've been watching Mitch McConnell move this bill through the Congress and there was this thought after the House debacle on health care that the Senate was going to step in and be the adult in the room and and craft more thoughtful legislation. Yet here we are with a bill in motion that everyone seems to hate, a process that McConnell has run in the dark and, 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 and a lot of people seeming to acquiesce to the chaos of the Trump White House. I'd say two things about that. I'd say first, a health care bill, as we found during the Obama administration, is very, very difficult to pass. McConnell has an extremely difficult job that no matter who is president, it would be hard 
to bring the two ends of his party together into, and get 50 votes and uh, let Rand Paul and somebody else, uh, Susan Collins, go off and do their thing. It's really, really hard. But it is made much harder by the lack of leadership from the White House. There's no Rahm Emanuel, as there were during the, was during the Obama administration, going up to the yeah. Hill every day, talking to people, saying, come on, guys, let's just uh, make this tweak, let's make that tweak, let's get a deal done. Having a dysfunctional White House does not make things easier for Congress. And, and you are arguably more qualified than anyone we speak to to ask this question. Does it dampen the animal spirit? Does it bring down nominal GDP? Does it bring down inflation-adjusted GDP? And does it filter into our investment world? Or is the czar world you lived in, Steve Ratner, is it discreet and separate? So far, it appears to be discreet and separate. So far, as you look at certainly the markets and how they're behaving, as you look at the consumer confidence and consumer uh, and business confidence and business optimism indices, uh, they still, so far, seem to be riding along on the so-called Trump bump and the belief that Trump will run a very business-friendly uh, administration, a lot of deregulation, a lot of tax and other benefits for the corporate sector that will, at least in the short run, drive the uh, economy upward. But as the dysfunctionality continues and as and if and when the scandal uh, uh, permeates further, I think it certainly could affect the animal spirits. Um, are you? Where do you think this goes long term for the GOP as a party? How are they? Do they? Are they going to be split permanently between the populist wing and the more moderate wing? If they're not, how does that get cured so that you can have a party and a Congress that actually produces legislation? I, I, the answer is I don't know. I, right, the, the populist, so-called populist wing is really more exists at the voting level rather than at the uh, senator and representative level. At the senate representative level, it's a pretty, it's still a pretty mm. uh, a conventional group of folks with, with as it is in the Democratic Party, with some people far out on the edges of it in terms of their own philosophy and and the concept yeah. of trying to make a uh, have a big tent. But I think I think. Uh, I think the question of where the party goes depends a lot on what happens to the president yeah. and whether he's able to function as a president. Steve Ratner, very quickly, or George Will mentioning it up in tax reform today, and Senator Wyden, can we get tax reform under a reconciliation 51% process? Well, that's the only way we're going to get tax reform is through reconciliation. But I think tax reform is very problematic because the border-adjusted tax is not going to happen Without that, there may be some revenue from this health care bill. That's a less than 50 percent probability, in my opinion. So they don't have that much revenue to pay for tax reform. And I think the deficit hawks are going to keep them from just spending a lot of money on tax reform that we don't have. Steve Ratner, thank you so much. Willard Advisors this morning uh, on our perspective of uh, Washington and economics, finance and investments as well. Good morning, everyone. Timothy O'Brien and Tom Keene. We're thrilled to have Timothy O'Brien as our permanent host with uh, Bloomberg Surveillance. Of course, here in uh, New York in a minute, we'll go to our reporter, David Gura. Uh, John Tucker. David Gura, our reporter. 
out in Idaho. We'll go to him in a moment. They found nothing but his hat left, his hunter's cap. I know, his Filson red and plaid hunter's cap, which will look perfect on Park Slope as he tells people about the brave tundra of Idaho. Futures up two, down futures up six with a churn to the market. Chair Yellen speaking to the Senate. Q&A there could be of importance as well. Right now we go to our reporter. Oh, our David Gura, our guest host, or our host, or whatever he is, when he gets back. David Gura in Idaho. David, what have you learned from the people? People of Sun Valley in your first hours there. <laughs> well, you know, you were talking to me yesterday about the prospect of there being uh, some snakes on the ground here. I nearly stepped on one yesterday, uh, Tom. But uh, these were not humans. These were not. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm here with uh, with Sir Martin Sorrell here, the uh, CEO of WPP. He's joined me here on set, uh, and it's a beautiful set, Tom. I'm sorry that you can't see it. We're on the side of a mountain overlooking the the resort. Uh, obviously, painting. It's a, a tough here. life for you, David. <laughs> I, you have my sympathy. <laughs> Uh, Sir Robert, let me start by asking you about uh, this conference in particular. What, did, what, the, what the participants here, the attendees, say about the, the state of media today, uh, about the media landscape? Well, I, I, the, uh, the obvious, uh, there are probably three things that we, we think about. Uh, the, the first is what is the role uh, of traditional print, you know, felling tr- trees and distributing newsprint. So that's one thing. And whether the investment is at the right level or not, whether the engagement level is higher than people give it credit to or whether the time spent is the right metric. The second thing is mobile and whether there's sufficient investment in mobile, probably Internet generally or as defined, that's probably the right investment. But mobile is probably underinvested. And then the third thing is probably linear TV is whether traditional network television is at the right level of investment what's going to happen in the future to that, whether it will be maintained, whether it will come under pressure, not to the extent that traditional print has, but that that traditional media generally has come under more pressure. So I think those are the three things that you see in the US, and you see that obviously increasingly abroad. Now, related to that is the sort of pressure that we're seeing uh, in maybe in packaged goods, retailing, from the growth of e-commerce as well. So it's, it's in those areas that people are focused. Tom asked me what I've, I've learned here thus far. A lot of people are talking about content and consolidation <laughs> yeah. and uh, what companies are going to be doing, how they're going to be creating more, providing more uh, content. How are you watching that? How does that determine what your business does? Well, uh, yeah, there are three things that we're trying to do. We're trying to get our traditional businesses, our traditional agencies, unfair to call them that because they morphed, this is not Don Draper anymore, but uh, to become more digital, uh, more global and more digital, that's one thing. Secondly, when you have digital assets like we do with a Wonderman, an Ogilvy One, an AKQA, a Possible, a VML or a Miram, drive them faster globally. And then thirdly, experiment, moving into the content area. So we've made lots of investments. It started, I guess, with our investment in vice.com. Yeah. We bought 10% of that for about six or seven years ago. But we've gone through you know, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard's film, Weinstein, Weinstein's, Weinstein's, Harvey Weinstein's company. Uh, we've invested in uh, content, millennial content with 88 Rising, with Refinery29, <coughs> Media Rights <coughs> Capital, which bought you House of Cards, uh, full screen, 100 YouTube channels. What so is we're, this, an ad for WPP? We're making WPP? lots of investments in the content. <clears throat> Yeah, Sir Martin, I I want to go to your wonderful annual report. And, folks, I would suggest it's a totally twisted and different annual report. It's something you throw at a kid in college and say, shut up and read this. Page 111, Jeremy Bullmore, (laughs) just because you can 
doesn't mean you should. Sir Martin, what they don't know is you're the king of no. How do you control the modern digital impulse? How do you harness and police all the young Turks that say, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do that? Uh, well, the answer is with difficulty, Tom. I mean, it's not an easy, easy task. I mean, our business uh, 15 years ago was about 10% in the fast, so-called fast-growth markets of the world. It's now one-third. It was virtually negligible in digital. It's now 40%. Uh, to, your, to your question, uh, I think you probably have to give those young Turks or those people that push you uh, even more uh, room. Uh, you know, there's one thing I regret is it's probably we didn't go faster on the, the technology side and on the data side. Today, 75% right. of our business is in media, data, and digital, I, I probably regret that we didn't go harder and faster because one of the things that people are raising, analysts are raising, institutional investors are raising, is whether traditional businesses can cope with the, the digital disruption that we're seeing. I mean, we have three forces, Tom, as you well know. Digital disruption, zero-based budgeting, uh, and then last but not least, activist investors the digital disruption is something that affects everybody. Right. Uh, the ZBB and the activist investors tend to be focused around consumer staples and FMCG, not not exclusively, but they tend to be. Right. Uh, but so they're much, much more focused. <clears throat> digital, however, affects everything. Well, what's so important here, and Tara LaChapelle kills it with Max Neeson in Bloomberg Gadfly, Sir Martin, today, on the mating of Verizon in Disney. Can those cultures mate in your experience? And this is like a Sun Valley question. I mean, you got a grizzly bear and a black bear, and they're not supposed to get together. Can Verizon mate with Disney? That's, a, that's very unfair. I mean, I'm sure you've been peppering all the people from Verizon and Disney or trying to hear. They, they fend you off here. They keep you penned out. Thank goodness. But, uh, no, I mean, you, you can make the same comments. You can make the same comments about AT&T, I guess, and Time Warner. Uh, you know, I, companies that come from different ends of the spectrum. But the intent is clear. The, the question is the implementation, I guess, Tom, and what you're getting at, and we've seen... Uh, history littered with examples of companies with different, for want of a better word, cultures trying to get together, and it's been increasingly difficult for people to do that. But that doesn't remove the necessity or the the sense of trying to bring these two things or two approaches together. We've seen it in our own industry, people trying to marry different approaches. Uh, take us, for example, trying to marry marry traditional creativity with digital, with data, with media. Uh, the, big, the big challenge facing us is how do we integrate the efforts of 200,000 people in 113 countries for the benefit of our clients? And it's actually very similar to the challenge that you laid out if Verizon was to do anything with Disney as you're suggesting they might. Let me ask you just one last question here about uncertainty. Of course, we've talked to you about Brexit over these last many right. months. How is that affecting your business? How is the uncertainty here in the U.S. about policy affecting your business? Well, on, on the U.K., first of all, the answer is not as much as we thought, but it will do. Uh, I, think, I think that over the next two years, life is going to be very uncertain in this Brexit negotiation that we're in at the moment. 
Uh, so uh, so it, the irony about this is that Britain might be leaving the EU at a time when France, Germany, Italy and Spain are on the up. We'll have to see what happens with the Italian election, which will come, which is a really important event, I think, in the context of EU politics. And also who replaces Mario Draghi. That's an important event from the financial side. As far as the US is concerned, it depends really on whether President Trump can implement his program. If he can, that's, in my view, positive for the US economy. Reduction in regulation, which is also always uh, also happening, uh, irrespective of what's happening on health care and tax. But certainly if implement after health care tax reform uh, and regulation reform mm. uh, and infrastructure spending, that must be good for the economy, at least in the short to medium term. That's what we're waiting sure. for. Uh, however, I have to say that generally uh, the world is a low growth, low inflation, lack of pricing power yes. and therefore focus on cost world. It's a tough world, actually. we got to leave it there, Sir Martin. Thank you very much, Sir Martin Searle of WPP. Tom, great to speak with you. Uh, David Gurth, thank you so much. Thomas and Sir Martin Searle, greatly appreciated uh, as well. From Sun Valley, I know. Uh, Tim O'Brien, there, there's a real window into this idea of culture in corporations. I guess it's the same as the political world uh, is, is well. I, I really wonder about really two separate psychologies mating, whether it's this company A or company B. In the case of terror, it's Verizon and Disney. But you just wonder how those boardroom meetings go. You know, um, I think uh, I, can, I can recall a million different instances in which Richard Plepler of HBO yeah. has said to me, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. That, yes. That yes. No matter, you know, how shrewd you are strategically, how great your product is, if you don't have a strong managerial culture that frees people up to do their best yeah. work and guides <clears throat> them appropriately, you're done. And that is well-timed for season 42 of Game of Thrones or whatever. Talk it's, about a scary culture. It's, you know, congratulations to HBO on completely dominating the cultural uh, need of people to tune in. It'll be... I don't. What do you what do you think? Tim? twenty million people, I know, something like that. I think it's a Sunday. Game of Thrones, Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen, David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.